This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Abema. And I'm Joe Newton. Our guest today is Gabrielle Jimenez. She's the author of three books, Soft Landing, The Hospice Heart, and at the bedside. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Could you give us a little background? Where did you grow up? Uh, Well, I've lived in California all my life. I have moved quite a few times. I was born in San Francisco. I was started in Carmel Valley and then moved to Menlo Park and then moved up north to Mendocino and then back down again. And most of my moves to be quite honest, were based on my behavior as a, a child. I was not a good kid. And, and so my parents were divorced. So one would say, okay, I'm done with her now, you have her. And so they kind of tossed me back and forth, which was why I moved a lot. Um, so I've lived all the way as far north as Mendocino, California, down to Carmel. So what was your uh, faith tradition? Catholic. I was born and raised very Catholic. My aunt is a nun. Um, I I believe that for the most part, up until probably 10, that was a, um, a, a big part of our life. But after that, I I don't I've never practiced it. I don't I don't know a lot about it. It wasn't um, it didn't web through the rest of my life. Yeah, obviously, when it comes to hospice work, um, you're this amazing force of nature. You're writing, you're blogging, you're doing a lot. What were your earliest childhood influences and what was your dream as a child? Well, I think you'll laugh. My dream was always to be Pat Benatar. So clearly I have gone in a completely (laughs) different direction. (laughs) Um, I I wanted to be a, a singer. I wanted to be on the stage, but I could never carry a tune. So when I would like apply in school to be in a play or, or be in some sort of production, I always got the back seat of things. I honestly, you know, to be honest, I don't think I ever had any direction. I didn't have um, a strong parental support and I didn't have anyone that ever said you could do anything, Mm. you know, which is what I've always said to my kids. And I um, so I didn't have anything. And until I was almost 40, which is when I decided to become a nurse, a hospice nurse specifically, I had no desire to do more. Perhaps that was because I was always told that I couldn't. And there was a lot of self-doubt that I carried with me all of my life. And then one day um, I had lost my job and which was actually part of the work that I was doing. So it wasn't a big shock, but my friend's husband, my, my friend was dying and his wife asked if I could sit with him so she could work. So I stayed with him for a few weeks until he passed. And I watched the hospice team come in, who I thought was amazing. But more than that, I found this really beautiful 
feeling inside of me as I sat with him, as I bathed him, as I fed him, as I, as I listened to him when he shared what he was going through. And, and I thought to myself, I need to do this work. And keep in mind before that I was managing commercial real estate. I was um, inspecting the safety on big commercial buildings. I was making a lot of money. I was wearing fancy clothes. So to completely change was a big change for me financially. And, but I knew it was something I needed to do. So I went to school to become a home health aide. And I did that for a little while. And then I realized that I was caring for this older couple who was nearing the end of their life. And, and I, I, I wasn't like comfortable with the way medications were being managed for them. And I, I thought they deserved to be cared for better. And I thought that, and it kind of opened my eyes to how people should be cared for at the end of life. And so I went back to school in my forties to be an, a hospice nurse, which was not wow. easy. It was really hard. Um, so I went to school specifically to do this work. And then I found purpose and I, I knew that that's what I needed to do. That's Your journey great. is very interesting to see that here you are stepping into a role that you really had no experience in. And especially when you were asked by a friend to help out with this gentleman who was dying and to feed, bathe, take care of all those kind of things and with no training. I mean, how did how did it just become so natural to you? Because he was my friend and that's what you do for your friend. And um, and I think, I don't know, I, I didn't really stop to think about it. I just knew that that was something I needed to do for him. He was the kindest man I've ever known. And he had always been there for me. And so there just wasn't any question. I just knew that I needed to care for him. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I honestly, I just kind of winged it, but um, but it worked. And I just, you know, some of the lessons that I learned from him, I carry out in the work I do. And with my teachings, I teach the same, which is to listen, ask them what they need and listen to them and validate their, their words. Let them know that you've heard them and honor what they need. Find out what something what people want at the end of life. How do they want to be cared for? How do they want to be treated? What, what do they want to hear from you? Find that out and honor that. And, and so that's what I did. I just listened to him and what he needed. And, and he told me. And it, it is really amazing that in caring for your friend, uh, you develop this global vision, uh, a true calling to who you are meant to be. And um, it's really powerful to see that. It looks like you are, life had you at a place where you are not only listening to him, but you're also listening for a vision for your life. You spoke earlier of your limited Catholic background or thereabouts, and noting that that really wasn't a significant uh, effort in your life or part of your life at that time. I see that you're, 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 you're and not acknowledging the fact that there's something else that is guiding you. And is, is that kind of true at all? I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always felt, and more so now than ever before, I have felt, let me say this, 
I feel this sense of peace within that took some time to get here. Mm-hmm. And, and I, it, it, maybe it's something that's been guiding me. Maybe it's this amazing power of the universe. Maybe it's a spirit within, maybe it's the trees, maybe it's the ocean, but I've, I've always felt that there was sort of this swirling spiritual energy and I knew some of it was mine. I just didn't know how to grab hold of it. And so over the past few years, especially doing this work and in fact, mainly doing this work, it's, it's like, I have, I have to go and get extra cups to hold it all because there's just so (laughs) Mm -hmm, much. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And every time I sit with a family of whatever culture or tradition they have, I feel like they give me little bits of it. Just say, here, Gabby, taste this. I think you're going to like it. And I do, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I like it all. I am not drawn to anything more specific, probably maybe Buddhism, but, but everything I am so drawn to to the practice and commitment and and strong belief of faith in general. You know, when you received this calling, you went to training to study specifically to become a hospice nurse. And that is rare. I've not had anyone, anyone no. say something like that. So why specifically hospice? Because I felt that people deserve to be cared for better at the end of life. And... Um, and the thing is about nursing school is nursing school teaches you how to heal and cure. There isn't hospice in nursing school. So I, what I really did was I went to nursing school to become a nurse. I started seeing patients to learn how to become a hospice nurse. But my draw is all about caring for the elderly, especially, um, but mostly anyone who is, who is dying. And I want us to do it better. You know, there's wanting us to do it better. Um, But you know from experience that being in the field of death and dying can be challenging. And uh, all of us, we come into this calling based on life experiences. What experiences in your life have made you to to long for this? When I was, I want to say maybe seven or eight, I honestly don't remember, but I was in my house I heard a motorcycle coming around the corner and I heard a crash. I ran outside. I saw a young, at that time, I mean, I was a kid. So by young, he must've been 20 something. And he had hit the tree with his bike or his motorcycle. And I, I just knew what to do. I helped him. I, I took my, I had this little sweatshirt around my waist. I took it off. I wrapped it around to soak up the blood. I put his head in my lap. Hmm. And now I remember it vividly, but I had forgotten this for years. I sat and I stroked his head and I just said, it's okay. I'm right here. I got you. And as a kid, I kept wondering, where are his parents? Why isn't anyone here? And then suddenly ambulances and all of that showed up, which at the time, of course, I had no concept of any of that. But I just remember holding him in my lap. Now, they took him, they put him on a gurney, they picked up all this stuff. I remember hearing beeping sounds and all of that. And I stood there and I watched and I I know that he died that day. And I, I do believe he died in my lap, but I just don't remember. Um, but I do know that at that moment, the most important thing for me was to let him know that he was not alone. And, and I think that has sort of stayed with me all my life for anyone, anyone who is struggling, whether it's with personal issues or, 
or loss or pain, I have felt drawn to to not fix them. I, I don't have this need to fix people. I have this desire deeply to make sure people know that they are not alone. And, and when I was a little older, when I was living with my dad, we lived on this ranch out in the middle of nowhere and um, no power. I mean, outhouse for a bathroom, full little house on the prairie lifestyle. And so our, our playground was the fields and the trees and the forests. And there were a lot of riverbeds with trees that had fallen in them. And I would make them forts. Well, my forts were nurses stations. So I was always the nurse. So I would pull a tooth if it was loose for the local kids. I would bandage things up. I would fix birds' legs when they were broken. I was always feeling this need to 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 bandage and care and and be this sort of nurse. But but never in my life up until my 40s did that ever even enter my mind as a career I might even be capable of doing. In fact, when I walked across the stage graduating from nursing school, all I could think of was, I, I did it. I, <laughs> I did this. I really just did this. Mm. And, and I just think that all along throughout my life, there were little things that said, you need to, um, you need to do this work. Gabby, that is, <laughs> wow, that, that, that's quite something. Um, because normally the first instinct is to call for an adult uh, when you witness an accident like that. But your first instinct was to go there and care for this dying man at such a tender age. Um, that's that's quite that's powerful. But you, but you didn't know he was dying. No, number one. I didn't even really know what dying meant. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's a. a I, you know, I read some of your blogs and you talk about, you know, here I'm jumping up to your current experiences uh, where you talk about dealing with children and die and death. I, I couldn't agree with you more on your cons- on your, your philosophy of being honest, open, forthright, no matter the age. Uh, that's difficult for parents. Mm-hmm. As, uh, as a nurse, how... How does that come into your work? Um, so I have learned, this probably might not be my best quality, but I have learned that honesty is key. I mm-hmm. don't need words, especially at the end of life, because I think people deserve the truth. The person lying in that bed who is dying deserves to know the truth. And those people who are about to say goodbye need to know the truth relative to everything. So I just look them right in the eyes and I tell them. And relative to children, I think we don't give them enough credit. And I never force my opinions. And I I always say, look, this is just my opinion. But here's what I want you to imagine. 20 years from now, is your daughter going to be angry at you because you didn't let her say goodbye to her grandpa? How does that resonate with you? Because you only get one chance at this. She will never, ever get another chance to say goodbye. Can you change that for her? How can you take this away? And then you you can never give it back. Mm -hmm. So usually that honesty has them thinking of a different way. Because people tend to be, and I don't mean this in a mean way. I, I mean this sincerely in that people tend to be very selfish at the end of life. In that I need this. I want this. This is how I would react. 
Well, we can't project our stuff onto other people because it's not about us. And a mother or father sitting there having, you know, three or four kids and and not knowing we, we want to protect them. I get that. But it's not protecting them because in life there is death. That is just a given. And when you love someone, even at the age of three or four, you deserve the right to say goodbye or at least the choice to. I have two grandchildren. My granddaughters are, are four and six. And I think that they would be heartbroken if they didn't get to say goodbye to me. And mm-hmm. I would never want them to carry that with them through the rest of their life. I had a similar, not a similar experience, but I had an experience with a, a family that had asked for the chaplain to come in because their family, their father was was imminently dying. And I was brought in and because there was a lot of confusion and chaos because I think he came on late onto hospice. So he didn't have a lot of our, our support up until that point. And I walk in and I start, of course, I look at, I look at everything when I walk into a person's home and I look at pictures, I look at the, what's going on around everybody. And there was a picture of this, this patient who was dying with his grandson. Grandson was about, you know, he, I mean, it was from birth to till he was about three and, you know, I'm sitting there around and I'm saying, where, you know, we've been just talking about things for a while. And, and I said, who is this, this, this young man here that is with the, with your, with your, with your father? Oh, that's our grand, that's our, our son, his grandson. I said, uh, you know, it's been in my experience that it's best for, you know, that you, you he would probably really enjoy having him visit. And they looked at me quizzically, and the, and the mother asked me, are you really sure that he could handle this? And I said, this is a normal thing of life. As long as you approach it in a real positive and, and appropriate manner, this will never be anything but more than just a visit with his grandfather. And before I knew it, the father got up and ran out of the house to go and get the boy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, well, I, 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 it, it, it had to be done. I mean, I mean and, and nobody else has said anything to them about it. I think people are afraid to, and I think that a lot of times people just don't want to mess things up, right? Or to to ruffle the feathers a little bit. I don't mind ruffling them because at the end of the day, I want to make sure my families have a takeaway that they they can live with. And part of that is, is making sure that everyone had a chance to say goodbye, that things were said, that those last moments, because that's their takeaway. They will go with the rest of their life with that. And I need to know that I somehow made it a little bit better, yep. if, if that is possible. Yep. Yeah, with that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sol and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. So you've authored uh, three books, Gabby. Uh, Could you tell our listeners about them? Yes, I wrote Soft Landing um, because, well, two things. One was because I had gone back to school late in life and I 
it was hard. It was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And I had a lot of obstacles along the way, a whole lot of obstacles. And I wanted to inspire others to have hope that they could do anything, but that it takes work and to not let age get in the way. So the intention was to say, look, I did all this and I'm a nurse. I mean, I was so (laughs) proud of that. And, And then my first years as a hospice nurse, the things that I was exposed to blew my mind. And I I wanted the whole world to hear, look what I get to see. Look at, <laughs> look at what I am learning, what I'm exposed to, what I witness. And so that book was that. And I had started the blog to share my stories because you guys know we meet the most lovely people and we have lessons every day. So that first book is really about my struggle, which was real. And, um, and some of the new things that I discovered in being a hospice nurse. And then the second book, which is called the hospice heart, which is also my blog and the Facebook page all under that same name Um, The Hospice Heart was to kind of add a few more of my blogs, but also to talk about my kind of walk down memory lane and realizing that all along I was meant to be a nurse. Um, One of the stories in the Hospice Heart is, which I shared with you earlier, but also is another one, is I used to, you know, I didn't have a lot of parents, you know, there was no supervision. So I just sort of did whatever I wanted. And one of them when I was younger was I would take walks to the cemetery. That was my favorite place. So I would pack up this little lunch and bubbles because I was a hippie kid. And I would go to the cemetery and I would find the oldest stone and I would sit next to it. And I would think of the stories that they, that must've happened for them. You know, they lived this long and this is what their life was like. And I would just create this life at the cemetery. Well, the groundskeepers called me cemetery girl because I was there so often. (laughs) (laughs) So when I would walk up, they'd go, hey, cemetery girl, which I'm sure they were probably making fun of me at the time, but I thought it was cool because I had a nickname. (laughs) And and so I've just always thought about that. And I, I just remember thinking that those times, like now, when I look back all along, I was doing this. So I share that in the hospice heart. And at the bedside was written because in doing this work, I... I realized that you do not have to have a license to care for people at the bedside. And as a hospice nurse, I would go into these homes, I would assess the patient, I would talk to the families, I would do all my things, and then I would leave. And I often thought to myself, well, what are they going to do when no one's there? So I changed the way I started doing things. And I started, instead of going in and thinking I had some sort of cape on, I handed over my tools to the family, the caregivers, Mm -hmm. the volunteers, the people who were really at the bedside the longest, and I helped them to provide the care. And this evolved to my takeaway. What can I do for them so they can take away that they did an exceptional job caring for someone that they love? I want them to know that they did this work, that they brought key, you know, calm and peace. So I wrote the, at the bedside with the idea that it would be for caregivers, for volunteers, for um, family members, people who are really at the bedside the longest so that they could do the work themselves and they could feel um, 
comfort in their heart that they provided really good care. So mm. in the book, in the bedside, if you look at the back page, I think the back five pages is all the tips and stuff that I use. And I just hand it over because I want I want everyone to be able to do this work. It's not a secret. We shouldn't keep it in a locked box, you know, and um, and so I hand it over. I'm just saying, you guys, you can do this. You don't need to be a nurse or a doctor to do it. And mm. and so it, it's actually getting really great reviews from the people who are really doing the work. Not that I don't do the work, but um, but I want a wife to know that she provided her husband with really good care. So does your hospice allow you to experiment with other therapeutic interventions without uh, the pain medication as a first go-to? if a person is experiencing pain? Well, I don't think they allow me. Um, I will always use medication. I mean, I, I think it's very important. I just, I don't want to overdo it or perhaps I'd like to try something first. And I think they know, they know that I'd, I'd rather reposition them or maybe put a drop of water on their tongue or talk to them and give them love first. I think they know that's how I am, but they also know that I would not hold back because of that. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan if it's needed. And I, I feel like I've done this long enough where I do know when it's needed and I would never hold back. And, um, I think I can't speak for my company, but I think that they trust me to make a, a decision that is best for that person in the bed. Yes. You know, when you talk about hospice, um, Man, you exude this amazing joy, uh, something really beautiful. What what do you find to be the challenges of hospice? Um, well, the challenges is hospice itself. I um, hospice has rules. You know, there are protocols that we have to follow. And I, when I go and I stay with a family, I tend to stay longer than we're supposed to because I'm not going to walk out that door. I am never going to leave that family when they're in the middle of a crisis. So I do stay longer. I love that my, my company supports that, but I know we're not supposed to. But the hardest part I have is when you spend time with the family, whether it's a couple hours or a couple days or even longer, there is a bond that happens. It happens almost every time because there's that that connection that you've made with them and they trust you and you're supporting them when someone dies i walk out the door i don't get to go back and i i struggle with that because i think that the path that the loved ones are going to walk on is is shaky and they thankfully they have the bereavement team the social works the chaplain and they all are wonderful but i had built some trust and i always feel like i abandon them. And I know that's not the case, but I can't help but feel that way. And, and it's why I became an end of life doula was because I can linger. I I get to stay a little longer with families. I get to support them a little longer. And I think that is my only struggle. I, I don't fear um, crisis or chaos. I don't fear family disconnect. I don't fear people who, who might not take to me right away. I, I welcome the challenge. I especially love to find a, a, a family in complete disarray and put them all back together again. So the only <laughs> thing I have struggled with is the boundaries that I have to follow. I'm glad you acknowledge those. That's important. Uh, you spoke that you do not want your patients to be alone. 
How did you deal with this during COVID? Uh, well, now I'm going to cry. That's that okay. So it was so hard. COVID was horrible. Sitting with families, I mean, patients when their families couldn't be there, not even be able to touch them, staying 10 feet away or six feet, whatever the protocol was. And watching them, I remember one time I walked, I had to walk through a plastic curtain to get to the door of a patient who was lying in his bed, dying alone in a facility because no one would go in there with him. And I've had to hold the phone next to ears, so many ears where people had to say goodbye. I got to sit with their loved ones while they were on the other side of the phone. And that just seems so wrong to me. And I I sat with so many people who died alone, who were sitting in rooms alone. And I'm claustrophobic. So all of that PPE was just so hard. And, but I, you know what? The first couple months was painful. It was exhausting. It was painful. It was heart wrenching. And then I, I started double gloving so that I could hold their hands. And then I just said, eh, I hugged. I didn't care what the protocol was. I hugged the families. I started doing FaceTimes. I would open the window and move the bed closer so they could come and just touch their hand. I mean, I honestly, sorry, world, but I, I did. I broke some rules because I, I couldn't handle it anymore. Um, but it was, it was really hard. That was, that almost broke me. You know, I, it, I had to wonder, can I really do this anymore? It made you question. It made you question your calling. Yeah. I I questioned, yeah, I questioned my calling because I thought to myself, I don't, I don't think I'm strong enough to do this. I went to a, a visit a patient at a facility and I was walking down the hall and there were chairs outside some of the doors. And I thought, oh, that must be where they put their food, you know, and they have to come out and get the food. So when I was done seeing the patient, I went downstairs to the front desk and I said, what are the chairs for? And she said, oh, the chairs are out in front of all the doors of the people who are COVID positive. And I said, well, there's a lot of chairs on that floor. And she said, you should look at the other floors. This is a four story building. I walked up every floor and I walked every hallway and I counted the chairs and there were like 30 chairs and I thought to myself, all of these people are in their rooms alone and they have COVID, which is scary. And I, just, I cried every day. I'm pretty sure I cried every day. It was really hard. How did you take care of yourself to remain, you know, replenished to go back the next day? It looked like you were living some kind of moral injury almost every day. Um, I didn't take care of myself at first. Um, I think that's probably why I'm such a big advocate for that now. Um, I didn't because I was so beaten. I, I would come home and I would just crawl under my covers and hide and, and shut out the world. And then I'd get up and I would dread, I would look at the clock constantly to see how much time I had before I had to get up and I would get up and I would do it all over again. And I was so tired. And, um, and I started practicing self-care again, which I had, I had promoted and done before COVID really religiously actually, but, um, I was just too tired to do it. I was too beaten up. I was, I was empty and 
And so I started taking walks and breathing fresh air. And um, I have a grief bowl that I use. Um, I've written about it. I'm not sure if you've seen it. I have this bowl that I fill with hearts. I collect hearts and um, it's got all different kinds of hearts in it. And so when I'm feeling that way, I empty the bowl of hearts and I touch each heart and I just think of lessons and gratitude and all the stuff that fills me up. And I take a moment to honor the people that I saw that day and the families that are aching. And I just work through it and I put it all back in my grief bowl. And so I honored my feelings. I breathed fresh air. I talked to people. I admitted the struggle I was having and, um, and I, I moved through it and then I found ways to work through it. And, um, and I, I would do things. I started this thing with, with patients where I would bring this red heart. I, I, I have them in my home as well. And I would put it in the hand of the patient. And then I would have him hold it while I was there. And then I would give it to his wife or his daughter or someone so that they could feel that they just held something that their loved one held because they couldn't. Um, and so I did that a lot to give them something that they had touched. Mm. And that felt good for me. And, and now I, I keep practicing it. I'm not an empty shell. I'm not broken. I'm, um, I'm going to find a way to make sure that, that people do not get left behind because of COVID. A lot of work ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, if only I could talk to all the people out in this world that are not communicating well together. <laughs> oh, gee, that would be wonderful. Right. Uh, the second avenue I was talking about is how do you become a doula? Ah, um, well, there's all kinds of schools. Um, you can get, you could be a doula super easily. You could take the weekend courses. I went through Conscious Dying Institute, and the reason that I did was because their program is deeper, um, longer. It's a little pricier, but um, it took me down a road that extended what I had already learned in hospice. I already knew how to sit with someone who was dying. But I wanted to know more. I wanted to understand the more spiritual aspects of dying, which this program taught me. And so it took a long time. It was about nine months and it was beautiful. And then I went through their teaching program as well. So I could be a conscious dying educator. And now I teach I teach classes on how to help people with the skills to care for people who are dying. But you can do the weekend courses and those are probably fine, but I don't think they'll teach you what you need to know, especially if you don't have this experience. Conscious Dying is really good. Deanna Cochran is amazing. Francesca Arnoldy is amazing. But there are a lot of really great programs out there. I would just research what is best. In, but you really want to go for it. If you're going to be a doula, um, I, I really encourage you to do a program that takes you down a really deep, beautiful path. Gabby, <laughs> you're working as a nurse and now you've added being a doula and conscious dying expert teaching and writing. How do you balance all this? Well, <laughs> people always think, God, how do you do all this stuff? I, I am fired up. <laughs> <It is laughs> no. I, I, 
I love being a nurse, right? I, I get to do work that I love. And then on my side job, I teach a couple days a week and I teach people from all over the world. I've got in my class now, I've got South Africa, I've got the UK, I've got Canada. Um, I just ha had someone sign up for the next batch of classes from Australia. And I, each week, one of the classes is a seven week class. And each week, the whole premise of this class is to tell you that you're dying, right? What do you want when you die? How do you want to be cared for? What do you think you'll need? And when I hand over these thoughts and you process that, it helps you to think about how you want to be cared for, but it also makes you a little more aware of how you want to care for others who are dying. And each week I watch them evolve. I watch them grow. I watch them like get excited about this work. And I, that is my, that is the gas to my car. So I am more fueled up when I do this work. I love it. I absolutely love it. So just to follow up, if I would ask, I mean, what are you running from or what are you running to? <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I think I'm running from my past and all the things that held me back from becoming who I am now, um, because there were a lot. I had a lot of the, the people I counted on most in my life um, always told me that I was worthless and I would never amount to anything. Mm -hmm. And I carried that with me all my life. So I think I'm running from that because they don't, they are not welcome here anymore. Mm -hmm. That energy is not welcome here anymore. Um, but it took a lot of work. And I think nursing school changed that for me. Yeah. Um, what am I running to? I am running to, you know, when you work in this business, you question your own mortality and you start to realize sort of the legacy you want to live behind. Right. And then I have grandchildren. And I, I'm constantly thinking, what will they remember me for? And so I think what I'm running towards, although slowly, is um, creating a legacy. I want to be remembered as someone who made a difference. I would love someone one day to say, what would Gabby do? You know, because because maybe my words resonated somehow or or maybe people will do things differently because I had something. I mean, we're a community. I'm not doing this by myself, um, but I I want to leave a legacy behind. I want to change the way I want to improve the way we are doing things now. And so I am running, although gracefully, towards change. Well, that will take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Saleh Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Gabby. You know, um... I hear people talk about hospice so much and end-of-life care so much, but you're the first person that I've seen that has this amazing love and joy. And um, it's, it's, it's quite amazing, you know, so I really appreciate what you're doing in this field. Um, for the p listeners uh, who are listening right now, and want to have that same kind of passion in end-of-life care, um, 
What advice do you have for them? Take my classes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, you know what? I think that people need to take pause for a moment and, and find out what it is they want to feel inside their heart and, and not get distracted by all that outside noise, social media, different opinions, all of that, and go to their heart. And if their heart is called to do this work or or called to do this similar of this work, I think they just need to take pause and listen to their heart and, and find the avenue that could best guide them. You know, I see a lot of new nurses come on, right? And even in our company, but I see it in all kinds of hospices where these new nurses come in and of course the hospices are going to hire them, but they don't have hospice experience. You can't just care for someone who's dying because you've got a nurse's badge on. It doesn't work that way. So I would seek guidance and support. And I would I would find out as much as you can how you can do this work well. And I just, I think we need to listen to our heart. I, I appreciate you bringing that uh, as the important aspect of it, because uh, I think sometimes we get into this, this, this work, and, and, and if it's considered, considered work, I don't think you should be part of it. Uh, right. it's, it's a calling. And it's not about you anymore and how you feel. And however, it's how am I going to be able to make this person uh, live whatever life they have left to live in a positive and a good way. And that's how I try to approach it. When I, when I, sometimes I train the new nurses and, and often also in my classes, I focus on three things, being present, mm-hmm. listening, and holding space or showing up. And by being present, I tell them, when you walk up to their door, this is their door. This is not about you. You put everything down. You don't look at your watch because you have to see a patient at certain time after. You do not have your phone on. And please don't let it beep every time someone is texting you or someone's calling you. You leave your phone. You leave your social media. You leave your family problems. You leave your work. All of that. When you walk into someone's home, this is about them and they deserve that. And when they speak to you, you listen, not to fix, not to nod, not to whatever. You listen to hear them and validate what they have to say. And when you are there, you show up completely. And if you do all of that, and in that 20 minutes, hour, however long you are there with that person, you've made a difference in their life because you have allowed them to feel um, like they matter you know, and that their words are valid and, and that their experience, although hard, is supported and that we are there for them. When you are distracted by everything else, you are not present for someone else and you should not be sitting at that bedside. And I always say you need to tap into the five senses. Like when you're going to see a patient, think about what they can see, what they can hear, what they can feel, what they can touch, all of that. Don't drag a chair across the bed. They can uh, across the floor. They can hear it. Don't tap on your phone. They can hear that. Don't whisper. Don't turn a light on above their head. Make sure their window is open. I mean, all of those things be present for them. When, when you do that, your heart, you, you feel a little bit of joy in your heart because you did good. But if you can't do that, if you can't show up, if you can't truly hold space for them, if you can't hear them, and if you can't be present, then you can't work in hospice. You know, um, that's powerful. I like um, 
earlier on, you spoke about the ritual of connectedness where you use the heart at the height of the pandemic, where the patient touched the heart and you gave it to the family. Uh, what role has ritual played in your practice? Oh, well, huge. Um, I do a lot of rituals. I, I'm not some sort of ritual like expert. I make them up. And, and it's things that I do to help connect someone who is dying with someone who's at the bedside or families who are grieving. Um, I know that we don't have a lot of time, but I'll tell you one of the rituals that I do, which is um, especially if there's a disconnect with siblings, but in general, when someone dies and I can tell that the person on the other side of the bed, um, the one who's saying goodbye is grieving, I will give them, you know, I keep embroidery thread in my car and I will give them each a piece of the thread and I'll cut it in half and I'll have them tie it to the wrist and send them off with a prayer or a wish of of something. And I tie three or four knots and with each knot make that a prayer or a wish or uh, a thank you. And then you tie the other string to your wrist so that you have this connection and, and that bond between them, then the days, weeks, however long that string lasts, you have this connection and it, it, it doesn't make the end so severe. It, it carries on a little further. Well, I do these type of rituals often with families. I make them up, um, but I'm consistent with them. You know, once I find one that I like, I use it all the time. So I do this class where I share all my rituals and then I create a new one for that group and help them to make up their own so that they can do it with families as well. Rituals big in my day. I'm just amazed at that, uh, to hear someone say they make them up. I mean, I like the honesty because it is true. Uh, never thought of the the significance of how much that I only think of the the rituals that I've seen within a certain you know religious background, you know the Catholic tradition, which is got is filled with all kinds of rituals uh, and a lot of other uh, faith traditions also have a lot of rituals and i'm I'm not that big of a ritual person, and I think that the, the, what you're talking about is so significant that we should start thinking about that a little bit more. I'm thoroughly enjoying your conversation. Actually, I'm being a whole lot quieter than than Saul ever thought I would be. I think because I, I'm I'm listening to what I see as as someone who really gets it, and I'm thrilled to see that. And I hope everybody who listens to this will get it as well. What are your final thoughts? My final thoughts. God, I have so many. I think if I could say anything to to people, it would be to. Um, you know, we only get one chance at this, at least in this mindset, you know, right now. And um, don't wait for the bedside to say the things, mm-hmm. you know, love the people you love right now. Let them know that they matter. Tell them all the things so that if that time comes when you have to say goodbye to them, all you're going to have to say is thank you. And I love you and goodbye. Because people, all human beings deserve to know that they matter. And, and I want you to embrace right now, like try to live life with a little bit of childlike excitement and don't waste a moment of it. And gosh, be a little nicer and not so gosh darn to judgmental and, and be kind to yourself and to each other. How can our listeners find you? Well, my, <laughs> my website is uh, www.com 
thehospiceheart.net. And on there is everything. Like my blogs are there, my class information's there, my book stuff is there, um, and everything. And also please visit the Hospice Heart Facebook page. It is a community. I think there's 73,000 followers now. And oh my gosh, they're lovely. I just love this page so much. And I it's a full-time job also because I don't let anyone else respond to people or do anything because I, I want it to stay consistent. And I don't offer any advertising. People are always saying, you, for $500, we can put this ad on your page. No, I don't want your money. I want this page to be authentic and real and safe. And um, it's a beautiful community. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate all your... All your work. Keep it up, kiddo. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me to be on your show. You're welcome. That was Gavi, the author of The Soft Landing, The Hospice Heart, and At the Bedside. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 